0: So like I said, Zechariah is just about the most confusing thing you're ever going to find. It opens up with a series of visions that Zechariah sees in one night, and they're all over the map. What they mean, though, is maybe the clearest part in the book, and that's the part we're going to do in this service. So you're in for a treat there, at least. Then in chapters 7 and 8, there is a question brought to the priests of Judea. And this question is very important and sets everything in its time, in its context. So Zechariah is there at the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah, who have come with Zerubbabel and Joshua from Persia, that is the country that destroyed Babylon, and took the P- Babylon who had taken them into exile 70 years prior. They have returned under the command of the king of Persia, Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, to rebuild the temple. And this has been begun. However, this rebuilding has run into a number of problems. The Samaritans particularly really don't want this to happen. And many of the people who have come back become unsure of whether they should stay the course. Meanwhile, Persia has had a little bit of a topsy-turvy moment as Cyrus has died and his son has shown himself incapable of holding the throne. And a man named Darius has come into power. So it is under Darius that all of this is taking place. But what again is key then is this is the people who were already kicked out of the land, now back in the land. And the question that they bring to the priests in chapter 7 and 8 is whether or not they should continue the tradition of fasting on four specific days of the year that are days when the destruction of Jerusalem took place. The day when one king was captured, the day when the walls fell, the day when the temple was destroyed, and then another day dealing with another one of the kings or the the rulers of Israel. And they want to know, since the temple is now being built, can we stop? Or do we need to continue this fasting? And the message that's given there is, is really one of the most important ideas in the book. God effectively says, I don't care about your fasting. I don't care what you think you're going to do to make me do something for you. What I want is for you to believe what I have already said to you. What I want is for you to trust that I am your God. What I want is for you to stop trying to justify yourself and believe that I am the one who shall justify you. You're not putting yourself back in the land. You didn't put yourself in the land in the first place. I did this in order to set up my salvation for all people. Now, the result of this is a little bit unknown who kept fasting and who didn't. But we do know this, that following the destruction of Jerusalem again, in 70 AD, after our Lord's death, resurrection, and ascension, the Jewish people again began to fast on these four days, and in their most rigorous groups, not all Jews worship the same way, but the most rigorous among them will continue these fasts to this day. That's chapter 7 and 8, and then you have chapters 9 through 14, which, if you want more on that, again... Just go on YouTube, look for my name and Zechariah. There's not much else to find under that kind of idea, and you'll find the sermon from last service where we go very closely through a lot of that section. The key to that section is to know it's about the time between Zechariah and the coming of Jesus. And it's fulfilled then with the life and ministry of Jesus, probably ending with the day of Pentecost in chapter 14. Now, One more thing about Zechariah and who he is and where he is in the Bible. While I say this, let me invite you to turn to Zechariah in your Bible. Look for it in the Pew Bible on page 793. That's chapter 1. This will be near the back end of what's called the Minor Prophets in English. Although in Hebrew, the name is far better. It's called the Book of the Twelve or the Scroll of the Twelve. Why is it called the minor prophets? It's not like the minor league versus the major league. It's really just about the size of the book, right? So think of a scroll. Have you ever tried writing on a scroll? If you roll it up on one side and on another side, you you pull it open and let's say you start at the front. In order to go further, you have to roll that part up and then pull it open again, and then roll it up and then pull it open again, and then roll it up and then pull it open again. After about 30 feet, it's hard to get back to the front very quickly, right? And so at a certain point, they stop making them any longer. And so Isaiah as a book is on a single scroll and Ezekiel as a book is on a single scroll. But the book of the 12, the scroll of the 12 has all 12 smaller prophets on one scroll. That's what we call then these minor prophets. They're the last section of your English Bible's Old Testament. And more or less, they are in chronological order. That is, the first one happened first and the last one happened last. Although there's a little bit of a play that goes on, this is really more about sections. So you have a section that's about the time before the exile. You have a section that's about the time during the exile. And you have a section that's about the time after the exile. The only prophets in that section after the exile are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, right? And we're looking at Zechariah, the one right in the middle. Now, where this whole, in order time-wise, chronology-wise falls apart, is that these sections are in order, but inside of them, there's a little bit of moving around to deal with themes that they have. So they're more in thematic order. And then especially early on, they alternate between Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom, back and forth. And that puts them a little bit out of order. Now, most of that won't matter to what we read today. You, by now, I hope, found page 793. You're you're at the book of Zechariah. We're going to be looking at uh, bird's eye view, uh, chapters one through six, and we're going to dig into some of that text specifically. The first part I want to look at in chapter one, verses one and following. It's going to set up the context of the history, and it's going to give the message you should take away today right? If all of these images about the flying scroll and the woman in the basket and the horseman in the myrtle bushes, if all that's like, I don't know, pastor, what do I do with this? That's okay. It's okay. But what he says here in chapter one should be pretty clear to all people of good faith in Christ in all times. All right. So verse one is just going to tell you when this is happening. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, This again is Darius, the king of Persia, who took control after Cyrus's offspring could not retain control. He is one of the greatest kings of Persia. They called him the shopkeeper because everything ran the way it was supposed to run in his kingdom. This eighth month of his time, of his second year, this makes it very clearly after the prophet Haggai. Haggai, the book right before this, has come and basically told the people, don't stop building the temple. If you read Ezra, you see there's all this fight with the Samaritans I mentioned. So after this, he has in one night all these visions. We'll come back to that. Second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. We know from this he's a member of the priestly class, a priestly family for what that is worth. But here's the first word he gets, right? It says this. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, Say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, Where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Okay, so the idea here is that when God says something, it's going to happen. People who don't believe what he says, they might last for a while, but eventually the word is going to overtake them. And so those kings of Israel and Judah who decided to set up statues to Baal to burn their infants in the fire of Moloch, and all these various Asherah and pagan sacrifices that they would do. It didn't seem to them that it would come to bear. But eventually, indeed, what Moses said of old happened. The land vomited them out. God's holiness could not take them anymore. And now the people who are there are there because God has said, go back and do it all like I said before. So the idea for them is to see that if they reject his word, they also will be lost. But instead, what they should do is receive his word believe it, and cling fast to it. Now, to apply that directly to us today, let me tell you something, St. Paul. Do you remember your history? Do you remember how St. Paul Lutheran Church exists? Because there were some Lutherans in downtown Rockford who didn't like the way that the normal German Lutheran Church was sort of hemming and hawing about the word of God. We believe this part, but not that part. We certainly don't want any of this Augsburg Confession stuff. Do you remember how then they came out of that church and met in First Lutheran's basement? The Germans had to go to the Swedes. It's not the way you normally did it. The Swedes were happy to rent it to us. They met in First Lutheran's basement because they wanted to be a church of the word of God. And they didn't want anybody to tell them the Bible wasn't true. That is the history that trusts this kind of text. That returning to God and putting all of your chips on what the Bible says to believe it, even when your heart says, oh, it's hard to believe, to say, I'll believe it anyway. I'll repent of that evil that I know I have, that that is God's guarantee of salvation to you, his deposit of the Holy Spirit to you now. And I can tell you again, St. Paul, as these last five years that I have been with you, I have said again and again, let us put our hope in the words and sacraments of Jesus Christ. And again and again, he has proven himself faithful to us, no matter what the winds of this age have sent against us. So now, once again, on this, on this day of uh, the first Sunday of Advent, let us put our hope in, the trust in, the Bible as what we believe. And knowing that this year of studying the Bible together is to put a double dose of Holy Spirit into our lives, not only here as a community, but in your lives as people and family. And as you go out into this community, believe that you're going to find people who are Christians who go to churches that don't teach the Bible. I just heard another story this morning, not my own life this time, but someone else who ran into a Christian out there who believes the Bible, used to go to church and doesn't anymore because that church changed and they stopped teaching the Bible. And this member of ours said, I should have invited them to church. And I said, I know it's hard though, isn't it? You get all nervous, but I want to encourage you to expect this. This is gonna happen. You're gonna find people that are hungry and I want you to tell them, I know where the food is. Come, see, taste that the Lord is good. Yeah. Now, from here, we're going to move into the confusion. From here, we're going to move into the visions. Let's start just by looking at chapter one, verse seven, which is going to kind of give you the setup for this. On the 24th day of the 11th month, this is three months after what he just said, which is the month of Shabbat in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night and behold. Now, it's just going to pause there. So this is one night. He's going to see seven visions. And these visions are so much that he basically is passing out in the middle of them because they're so overwhelming to him. These are confusing images, kind of like when you open the book of Revelation, you find a bunch of images that they aren't necessarily literal. I mean, the four horsemen of the apocalypse aren't riding around on horses out there for us to see. Yeah, but they are out there for us to see when you understand that these horsemen of the apocalypse are war and famine and sickness and the tyranny of the devil over us. Oh, well, then it's very easy to see, okay? So this is what's called apocalyptic literature by Bible scholars. That means it's prophecy that moves from direct this to this. Something will happen. You'll see it happen too. Here's a picture, a picture drawn from images that we all know or images from former prophets, and it has a deeper meaning than what you see. we're gonna look at these pictures and some of them will be easier to see than others, I just mentioned the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They're actually gonna start their story here in Zechariah, but um, right, right away, I believe, with the vision of the horsemen. So let's look at verse eight of chapter one, where he says again, I saw in the night and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees of the glen and behind him were red sorrel, that means like either gray or spotted, And white horses. Now we have lots of horses. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. All right, I'm going to stop there to try to just make a little sense of that, right? And it moves fast and it uses different words to describe different people. So there's a man in the middle of the myrtle trees who is also called the angel of the Lord. That means that this man in the middle of these trees is our Lord Jesus Christ before he was incarnate. He is being met by a rider on a red horse who's leading troops probably mounted on more red horses, some gray horses, and some white horses. And Zechariah says, what's going on? And the man actually turns and says, these are the ones I send out to the earth. Now, if we jump ahead to Revelation and let this be kind of something that interprets the text for us, we can see that what this is, is Jesus saying all the destructions on the earth, All the things that we would call terrible, war, bloodshed, famine, theft, all of this, these are under Christ's control. And he is managing them, managing history for the sake of his purposes and his agenda, which again, as you know, is that he might enter our flesh, die, and rise again for our salvation. But they have returned now, and they've said the earth is at rest. Well, under the reign of Darius, indeed, things were going pretty well. Uh, These horses are going to show up again later as God is going to send them out one more time. And So I'll kind of take it up again there. But for now, the idea is under the Persian Empire, do you remember from last week? That's the second beast and the silver part of the statue that Daniel saw. Under the Persian Empire, things are peaceful and everything's being done the way God wants it to be. What does God want most right now? the rebuilding of the temple. And that's again what Zechariah is writing to encourage the people about. Now, because I just said that part about Daniel pretty quick, let's just review that here. Remember that Zechariah will know this. He will have the scroll of Daniel in which it is said that there will be four empires between Babylon and the time of Christ coming, the little stone that destroys the great statue and sets up the mountain of the final kingdom. Those four empires are Babylon, who conquered Israel, Persia, who conquered Babylon, Greece under Alexander the Great, who conquered Persia, and then Rome, who finally puts an end to the various states of Greece. There are four of them that come out of Alexander's conquering. Yes. So uh, just kind of by way of review, we then are in that second kingdom period. And much of what will happen in this book is written for those who will endure the second and third kingdoms, that is Persia and Greece. All right. So after this vision of these horses, these horsemen, there's not four of them yet, the way John says it, but they kind of are four colors in the works. Um, next, we have a vision of four horns, four horns. Don't think trumpets, although trumpets do come from originally taking the horns of an animal and blowing through it, but think horns on an animal, like there were horns on those beasts that Daniel saw. And these four horns are representative of those four beasts or those four kingdoms. It's a very short vision, it's just verse 18 and 19. It says this, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. Think of that as four kingdoms. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. That is these are the kingdoms that are going to overrun the Holy Land until Jesus comes. I just said them, right? Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Now, there's another vision right on top of this. You could call it the same vision, I suppose. But what we don't want to do is confuse these four craftsmen with the four horns. They're different from each other. and I'll try to show that. Let's read the text first. It's just verse 20 and 21. It says, then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter. Now, the word craftsman here is maybe best imagined as like a metalsmith right? You got a smith in his smithy and he's pounding on the metal with the fire, but he's making the fire serve him in order to turn it into something good, perhaps putting gold and silver plate around the edge of an animal horn to make it worthy for a king's troops to blow or something like that. And so what happens is he sees these four smithies of sorts, and he says, what are these? And the confusing part then would be, In verse 20, when he says, these are the horns that scatter Judah, don't hear that as him pointing at the craftsmen. He's pointing to the horns he just saw. These are the kingdoms that scatter Judah and these craftsmen are the ones coming to destroy those kingdoms and make them serve my purpose. In this, you might imagine this in the same way that Daniel talks about the archangel Michael and how Jesus and Michael are fighting the prince of Persia. It's all about the fight between angels and demons behind the scenes to keep things moving the way God wants them to move for the sake of his purposes. And that's this here too, right? So as war and bloodshed and famine go out through all the earth, even though they're at rest, as kingdoms rise to keep Israel down, nonetheless, God is in charge of history and he is forming it and molding it into his own agenda and design. That's the first two visions of that night vision series. And you might imagine if this had been your dream and you woke up, you wouldn't wanna go back to sleep. You'd be like, I think I'm done for the night. No more, what, tequila late in the evening, something like that. But this isn't tequila. This is, again, God giving certainty to his people. The next vision is all of chapter two. We're not gonna read through this one, but, but in it, Zechariah will see a man with a plumb line, a measuring line. We don't really think of these very much because we have tape measures and we have laser sights and all sorts of other things we use when we build and lay out. But think a little bit about how maybe sometimes when there's road work about to be done, you'll see people from the state out there with a little tripod and they're looking through a thing and they're kind of scanning the ground to make sure the ground's a certain level and they're gonna lay it all out. That's what this tool and what this man is doing. He's laying out the lines for the city of Jerusalem. Now remember, at this point, there's no city of Jerusalem. It's all destroyed. At best, there's a little bit of the temple built, but there's no wall to the city. There is no people living in the city. And this man is laying out what will be the extent of Jerusalem. And he is effectively saying that Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt because God is the one making sure it will happen. Just as there was a man in the myrtle trees, who we understand to be the angel of Yahweh, actually Jesus Christ before he's incarnate, so this man laying out Jerusalem is the son of God there preparing to have the city built and inhabited, as the chapter will say, with many, many, many people, all the nations of the world even coming in order that, why? That he might enter it on a donkey so they could reject him and he could die. Yeah, that's chapter two, Christ measuring out the city of Jerusalem. In the book of Revelation, just like the horseman, John will pick up on this idea of the measuring of the city, only instead of measuring the city of Jerusalem, which will be destroyed or was destroyed by the time John wrote, it is a measurement of the final Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, which will come down with Christ on the day of his return. And so again, what I want you to see there is how much of what Zechariah says temporally to the people who were waiting for Christ to come, John picks up in Revelation and applies to all of us in a different way. And we'll pick that up a little more when we actually look at Revelation, not before Christmas for sure. All right, so chapter three is a really amazing part of the vision and we are gonna read through this. This is the vision of the purification of the high priest Joshua. So when Cyrus sends the Judites back to the land of Judah to rebuild Jerusalem, they go under the leadership of two people. One's name is Zerubbabel. I've mentioned him before. It's kind of a hard one to remember, but Zerubbabel is a descendant of David. He's in the line and house of David. If you look in Matthew chapter one, you'll see he's in the lineage of Jesus Christ that from Zerubbabel comes Joseph and Mary at a certain point. So Zerubbabel is made by Cyrus and then Darius, the governor of Judea. That's hard for him to do, but again, he's here leading the people to build. The other leader, not the would-be king, and Zerubbabel never is a king, uh, but the high priest of Israel is a man named Joshua. Joshua will live a long life and be very successful, although tradition holds that he made some really bad decisions toward the end of his life. But as the high priest, he is there to reinstitute those sacrifices at the temple, which is entirely part of having the covenant work at all. Yet this vision is going to show that not just he, but all of the people without the right sacrifices are unclean. They can't even begin to do this. Unless, first, God cleans them. And that's, that's what's going to happen here. One more thought before we start. Don't forget, the name Joshua is the Hebrew version of the name Jesus. So here we have a vision of Jesus, the high priest, taking the dark, evil sins of the world and having them purified for the sake of all the people. If you can't see where that goes in the New Testament, I don't know that I can help you very much, yeah? All right, so chapter three, verse one. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Maybe it reminds you of the book of Job a little bit there, yeah? Verse two, and the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire all right if you want to take something to highlight and come back in the future to comfort your conscience all right remember that all of your what shame all of your trials all of your fears are ultimately satan's accusation of you and this is where god says to satan on your behalf god rebuke you jesus christ rebuke you this is a brand snatched from the fire. Imagine having a, a fire pit in your backyard and maybe having a piece of wood you've been working on that you care about as like a little, I don't know, a toy or something you're whittling and it falls in the fire and you can't stand it. So you grab it and you pull it out, you blow it out and you save it. Okay, That's what God is going to do to Joshua as a representative of all the people and thereby to Jesus on the cross, death and resurrection in order to do it to you. Yeah, if you can put all that together really quickly, God will not let Satan's accusation of you stand, not because of you, but because God wants to snatch you out of the fire. Verse three, now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Now there's the fire on him already. His clothing is unclean. This isn't just about how it would smell and be gross, although it's that too isn't just about his own personal sin, although it's that too. It's only not just about the sins of the people, although it's that too. But the fact is the rules for the high priest's garments were such that he could not do his job if he was not clean. In the same way that man cannot be before God if we are not cleaned by him. And verse four, the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity. That means sin, right? I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Remember in the book of Revelation chapter 7, when John looks and sees an uncountable multitude, what are they wearing? White robes, pure, clean vestments yes and this because the great high priest jesus has purified the robe of his body the tent of his body the temple of his body and his body and blood which we will feast on today is there to do the same to you now this means for joshua specifically he is now validated to do these sacrifices at the new temple which leads to what zechariah says next It can be a little confusing, but it's super cool. So Zechariah sees them give him the white clothes and he says, verse five, I said, let them put a clean turban on his head and clothe him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. So what's that idea, the clean turban? Uh, You know, it just sounds like a, a strange head wrap from the far East that we don't wear anymore. But the word there, it can be translated as mitre. You have to go back into the Torah and look at the rules for the high priest. He didn't just have a robe. He had a very special hat that he always had to wear. And on this hat were two chains that hung down and they held a plate in front of his face that had the name of God on it and had the promises of God written on it. So whatever he would go, he would bear on his face, on his forehead, the holiness of God, yeah? And so Zechariah seeing, oh, they're making him able to present the sacrifices said, get the part that makes it complete get the holiness of God and put it on his head. All right, from there, we'll go ahead and read the rest of this chapter. Verse six, And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, Every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So you have a little bit of fast moving there, but you can see the promises to Joshua aren't ultimately fulfilled by Joshua. They're fulfilled by Joshua Christ, right? Jesus Christ, who is this righteous servant, the branch who in that day, which is going to come, will purify the land of its sins in a single day. This again must be finally, about Jesus Christ and Good Friday and his death upon the cross. The language of that day will be used a lot throughout the rest of this book, and it's established here as the day when the sins of the world are atoned for by the true Joshua, the final Joshua, our Lord Jesus. All right, leaving chapter three behind, we have a couple more visions. We're not gonna look at the text specifically, but I'll give the bird's eye view of these. Chapter four, I love this one. He looks and he sees a lamp stand. Lamps back then were the only way to get light, and especially at nighttime, right? And the only way to make the lamp work was not with electricity, but with oil. And the only oil that they had in this area to burn was oil from olives. Olive oil was good for lots of things, not just burning, but that was a primary part of the olive crop every year was oil for the lamps. In the temple specifically, there were lamps that looked kind of like our candelabras do up here with seven different lamps on a single stand. These had to be perpetually burning in the temple as a sign of the presence of God, particularly his Holy Spirit. What's unique about the lamps, excuse me, about the lamp that Zechariah sees is that it's a single lamp with seven parts that come up from it and it would seem there are seven more lights on every single one of these lamps. So can you imagine one of these lights that goes up, split seven times, goes up, and they split seven times more. So you would have 49 fires glowing there at the top of this thing. It'd be a blazing bit of light. Yeah. And the idea, seven, the holiness of God, seven times seven is, this is a super amount of holiness. This is the full holiness of God and would have to represent the restoration of the temple in some way. But these lamps have something else really strange about them. They're fueled by a funnel. So in the temple, with the seven that they had there every day, the priests had to go in and refill those lamps with oil. Otherwise, they would burn out, and that was not allowed to happen. Kind of like Not quite the same, but kind of like you can see our elders before the early service every week checking these lamps to make sure all the oil is here so our lights don't go out. These all do run on oil, not not olive oil. So but this particular one isn't ever going to need to be refilled because it's fed by a funnel. And this funnel goes back to two different olive trees that rise up behind it. And those olive trees are just kind of bleeding oil into the funnel that comes down and lights the lamps forever. And, you know, scholars can debate about what this means and where it goes. But I I think the safe bet, whenever you find two things that are identical in apocalyptic literature, in these visions, they always are going to be connected to the Old Testament and New Testament covenants, the Old Testament and New Testament church So what this is ultimately saying is that the salvation of God by his Holy Spirit is because of the oil in the people of God that God has put there growing both before Christ came and after Christ came. You might also connect this end to the uh, the parable our Lord tells about the 10 virgins, five who are wise and five who are foolish and how they need oil in their lamps. So also this is about, again, the presence of the Holy Spirit in God's church. This is a promise. This is something God does. This is something that can't be taken away. Because of the purification God achieves in Jesus, there is always enough Holy Spirit to go around in his church. The thing to be careful of is to recognize there's such a thing as a false church. There's such a thing as a church without the Holy Spirit. Shorthand, how do you know the difference? Do they teach the Bible or not? Is the Bible what they say is true or not? The more Bible you got, the more Holy Spirit you got. The text given for us once and for all. All right, so that's chapter four, the golden lampstand, uh, the eyes of the Lord throughout all the earth, all these pipes, are so cool. All right, chapter five is again, two visions that kind of are, are smashed into one. And, and they're maybe the strangest ones in the whole thing in terms of like pure vision. First, he sees a scroll right? We talked about scrolls earlier. So imagine it all the way open, right? And it's just kind of flying through the earth, this scroll. And on both sides of the scroll are written curses, curses, bad things, things that go wrong. What is this? It's the curse of God for our sin is the collapse and fall of mankind. You look at Genesis 3, he says things like, you know, you will increase pain in childbearing, Uh, there'll be fighting in the family, there'll be thorns in the ground, there'll be sweat on your brow, and then you're gonna die, right? And this curse is still here, flying through all the earth as a punishment for sin. The next vision they they see, or the image he sees, is sin itself. He sees two, uh, I believe they're storks, maybe they're they're angels. I can't remember now. He sees two flying beings and they're carrying between them a basket. And this basket has a lead lid on it. Uh, They didn't really talk about lead being poisonous back then, but it definitely is heavy. It's a heavy metal. And so this lead lid is on this basket. And for a moment, it's peeled back and out pops this woman. It's like one of those awful cakes from, from way back when or whatever. But Out pops this woman, and she is uh, wretched. She is Babylon. She is the whore. She is Jezebel. She is called sin itself. And she's shoved back into the basket. The lead lid is put on the basket, and she is flown away to, it says, the land of Shinar, where a place is prepared for her. Let's just keep it short again here. What does that mean? It means that sin is still here on the earth. The curse is still here on the earth, even though Joshua, the righteous branch, has achieved salvation for us. But nonetheless, sin is captured, sin is covered, sin cannot escape, and sin is being taken to a place where it will be cast away forever. So hear this a bit like the lake of fire in the book of Revelation, where the devil and all his angels and all those who choose to follow them rather than our Lord Jesus Christ will be cast into the fires once and for all. And even if you would like to see this woman as the double, feel free to do that. I, I, I think that's probably quite right. The whore of Babylon is what she'll be called uh, in the book of Revelation. All right, so that's the flying curse on the woman, chapter five. Then we have chapter six. Now we're back to the horsemen again. So let's, let's read this part here. Chapter six, verse one. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw... And behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains and the mountains were mountains of bronze. And the first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses and the fourth dappled horses. Black is the new color that Zechariah has added in, by the way. All of them are strong. Notice there's more than four. There's a whole army here, but the four colors are thematic, again, of the entire earth. Verse 4, then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Common question. Verse 5, and the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. Remember, that just happened in the myrtle tree. They come to the Lord. They said it was at peace. He's sending them back out again like the craftsmen to bring down the horns to continue to manage and manipulate even the uh, the kingdoms of this earth in order to prepare the way for Christ to come. Verse six, the chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country and the white one goes after them and the dapple one goes toward the south country. Do you remember from last week, that whole bit about the king of the north and the king of the south? How you're gonna have a fight between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. So now we're moving toward that point where Persia has fallen, Greece is now being kept in check by what? War, disease, famine, all in order to prepare the way for God to come among his people. Verse seven, when the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried out to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. What to take from that again? There is constant warfare between demons and angels. There is constant battle between darkness and light. You can't see it. What you see are trials and temptations and struggles and the rise and fall of kingdoms. But behind it all, the powers of the heavens, the unseen are at war in order to protect and preserve you. This is why when we see the news and we go, oh my gosh, what? We have to first go, dear Jesus, thank you. Because we know that whatever it says, he has allowed to happen. Even if he allows these war horses that are eager to destroy, which themselves will be cast into the fire on the last day, it is only so that he may bend history back toward what he needs history to be. And this will always be for the sake of the elect in Christ. First, that he would come. Second, that you would believe in him. You personally and you together. Remember, as Paul says so clearly in Romans chapter 8, that all things work for the good of those who are in Christ. And that the present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that shall be revealed in us on the day of his return. The rest of chapter 6 has another image. And it's it's kind of interesting. There is a command for uh, Zechariah to go and meet some men who will be coming from Persia with a lot of money to help rebuild the temple. And he's to take some of that money and he's to make a crown of silver and gold and he's to put it on Joshua, the high priest. Now, this is weird. The priest is not supposed to be the king and Joshua is not from the the the, uh, the house of David. Uh, but again, see Joshua as a foreshadow of the righteous branch, Jesus of Nazareth, who is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek and the king on David's throne. There's some tradition that this crown was eventually taken and put up in the temple, kind of out of the way. You would have to climb up and look over a space to be able to see it, but that when you were there for priestly service, they would always have you go up and look to see it so you could see, ah, yes, it's still there. We're still waiting for the king. Uh, What happened to that crown? after Jesus came as king and they crowned him with thorns instead, and then he sent Rome to destroy Jerusalem once and for all, effectively. No more temple on that mount. What happened to that crown? It was taken away with everything else. Where's the Ark of the Covenant? Where are the lampstands? They've all been melted down or maybe taken directly up to heaven. But nonetheless, we know it was there then. Why? The same reason the rest of the book's gonna say what it says. Because all of history was being kept in check so that one man could be born of a maiden in Bethlehem at the fullness of time in order to let all the sins of all people that have ever been, have that woman shut in the basket, binding up the strong man, Satan, rebuking him and allowing him no more accusations, putting in check again, all the horsemen of the world that try to destroy us and binding us up in that temple, which shall never be destroyed, not a mere building but the flesh and blood, the body of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. He is risen. risen. Hallelujah. And indeed now that body and blood comes to tell you, to take away your sin, to bind with you in this feast of his very supper.